Our message today, a marvelous hope offsetting temporary troubles. Got to keep that throne room perspective. Uh, God's in control overall. First section, check if you're in trouble. There are many kinds of trouble that you can find yourself in through life. Relationship troubles, health troubles, financial troubles. However, if you're in the latter category, it's not recommended you resort to crime in order to get money because that lands you in even more trouble. For instance, robbers in training can learn a thing or two from Kenneth Richardson. Lesson number one, do not use your check stub as a hold-up note when attempting to commit a bank robbery. Richardson, 40, of Monk's Corner, found out that after he was arrested and charged with entering a First Citizens Bank branch with intent to steal. Investigators called to the scene said a man had handed a teller a note demanding cash. When police inspected the note, they found Richardson's name and social security number on the top. The note was written on a check stub. Duh. Further, here's lesson number two for fledgling criminals. If you're going to go to the trouble of committing a serious crime, make sure it's at least worth your time. Police said Richardson's attempted bank robbery yielded only $85. Bail was set at $300,000. The early followers of Jesus in Thessalonica found themselves encountering troubles of a different sort. They were being persecuted for their faith. The Apostle Paul wrote to encourage them to stand strong despite the troubles that they were facing. Their hope was not in a sudden surplus of cash such as might be had by robbing a bank or committing other crime. Instead, Paul reminds them their hope lay in Jesus who would be revealed to rescue them from their stress and reward them for their faith and share his glory with them because of the kind of people they were becoming through the testing. Today's big idea is this. When troubles perplex, Jesus' coming protects. His glory connects. When troubles perplex. The letters to the Thessalonians were written to believers in the city of Thessalonica, a large city, perhaps 200,000 inhabitants, a capital of its district in Macedonia. It held an important location near the Aegean Sea and on the Via Ignatia, or Ignatian Way, a sort of superhighway of the time connecting Rome to its far-flung colonies all the way to Constantinople. Now, the road was about 20 feet wide and paved with stones or hard sand, which is a very good road in those times. So here's Thessalonica here, smack dab in the middle and at the head of the Aegean Sea, and then that... Uh, Ignatian Way runs from there all the way over here to Byzantium or Constantinople. And then by ferry, they could go to Italy and up to Rome that way. So you can see the strategic location of Thessalonica. Very strategic location for spreading the gospel. Paul had planted a fledgling church in Thessalonica, but it was only three weeks before some Jews, jealous of Paul's influence and growing popularity, formed a mob and started a riot. Paul's host, Jason, was forced to post bond and send Paul and companion Silas away. As you see, read more about it in Acts 17. So Paul would understandably have been anxious to know how this infant church was making out based on just 
three short weeks of instruction. Later, Timothy brought back a good report to Paul when the latter was at Corinth, which must have caused Paul to rejoice and be relieved. So these letters give Paul an opportunity to encourage the Thessalonians and flesh out some of the doctrine he hadn't had time to thoroughly present, some of which they had perhaps misunderstood or been drawing wrong conclusions. In some ways, there are parallels to our situation today. We are living in a post-Christian culture. Christendom in Canada has not been dominant for some time now. In many settings, to voice Christian beliefs can be met with stares, indifference, or even accusations of exclusivity or imposing your morality or bigotry. Often it seems safer to stay quiet about your beliefs rather than speak up. It's clear the believers in Thessalonica were experiencing persecution for their faith. If things had begun with a mob and a riot, they hadn't really gotten much more receptive since. Second Thessalonians 1.4 Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. The word behind persecutions means to drive away, to harass. The term behind trials in the Greek is flipsis, from a root meaning to press, bring pressure, hence affliction, tribulation, distress. New Living Translation has, in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. Life wasn't easy for the young believers at Thessalonica. Look further down at verses 6 and 7. You will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. The Christians there were being troubled by their opponents. The root word again is flipsis, hard-pressed, facing affliction. What troubles and pressures are you facing? What's stressing you out? Sometimes it's just life in a fallen world, health issues, lack of resources, environmental factors. But the Thessalonians were being persecuted for their faith. Are you encountering opposition from unbelieving family members or co-workers? They just don't seem to get why you would be a follower of Jesus. Perhaps your values clash with others who don't see any problem in being self-centered, living for the moment, chasing the big buck, or cheating in order to get ahead. You find pleasure in immoral pursuits, to whom integrity is a concept they require of others, but don't practice themselves. When we encounter hardship and troubles, it's easy to give in to whining and complaining. You start to wonder why life is so unfair. Our murmuring festers and soon we start to resent the way God has been letting things turn out for us. The age-old question of theodicy arises, how can a good God let there be so much suffering and pain? Our troubles perplex. Next section, Jesus' coming protects. Paul acknowledges this theodicy problem is very real for the poor Thessalonian church, which is encountering such opposition. As it is right now, life doesn't make sense. But we haven't seen the end of the story. 
God will make things turn out right if we're patient and persevere. Today's big idea, when troubles perplex, Jesus' coming protects his glory connects. Both verses 5 and 6 refer to God's righteousness despite our current suffering. The context here from verse 4 is the believer's perseverance and faith in the face of their persecutions and trials that they're enduring. Look at verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God's judgment is right. NRSV, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Bible in basic English, which is a clear sign of the decision which God in his righteousness has made. In other words, right now, God is already supplying them with strength and faith through his Holy Spirit to persevere and stand strong. And that resistance they're putting up in the face of suffering is evidence God's in control and will make things turn out fairly. Paul reiterates God's righteousness in verses 6 and 7. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Hear that? God is just. He's not being unfair. Wait and see how he settles the score with perfect justice. You can't see it in the English translation, but in verse 8, the phrase, he will punish, is directly connected to the Greek root meaning righteousness and justice. To vindicate one's right, to do one justice. Paul's saying God is already bolstering the Thessalonian believers now in the immediate, strengthening them in the face of persecution by his Holy Spirit. Plus, God will vindicate them in the future by how God pays back or makes those hurting them pay the penalty in eternity. And for their opponents, the prospect is terrifying. Jesus will be revealed or unveiled from heaven, it says, in blazing fire. Think of the burning bush that caught Moses' attention in Exodus 3. Or Mount Sinai ablaze and rumbling with God's glory when the Israelites received the Ten Commandments after being rescued from slavery in Egypt. Fire is bright and radiant, but it is also dangerous. It purges and purifies. Verses 8 and 9 are very sobering awe-inspiring. They, they stop you in their tr- your tracks. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Do you know God? Do you have a relationship with Him? Or is He just a quaint, archaic concept? Do you obey the gospel? It's not just a a news item that we can watch on a screen or ignore if we like. It's a royal invitation to be accepted. Reject it and you've snubbed the king of the universe. It's a cosmic affront. 
How did Jesus begin proclaiming the good news at the outset of his ministry in Mark 1, verse 15? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Hearing and responding requires repentance, changing your ways, leaving your sinful patterns behind, starting over again with God's help. Punishment awaits those who refuse to listen. Verse 9 mentions everlasting destruction, not annihilation, but ongoing complete ruin. Shut out from the Lord's presence, shut out from the majesty of his power, cut off permanently and forever from the one who alone is absolute goodness and love and truth and holiness. Whose company does that leave you in? The Bible has a name for that place of outer darkness and unquenchable flame. It's called hell. You don't want anyone you know to end up there. What Paul's talking about here isn't some invention of his own, some legalistic doctrine introduced later in the church by those who'd lost sight of Jesus' ministry of grace and love. We do have it mentioned in the earliest creedal statements. For example, the Apostles' Creed. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. But the prospect goes right back to Jesus himself who taught in Matthew 24.30. At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And long before Jesus' ministry, Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, was predicting it, to which Jesus was alluding. Daniel 7.13, he said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So this isn't some quirky tangential add-on idea to the Bible's main thrust. It's woven right in. Are you ready for his coming? Have you gotten right with God? Jesus is the key for being reconciled to the Holy One. His glory connects. To recap, we've seen how the believers in Thessalonica were suffering, being persecuted, troubled on account of their trust in Jesus. The mob had not been on their side, riotously infuriated at Paul and his teachings. This naturally raises the question of, how can God be good and all-powerful yet allow such hardship to happen? We've seen how his strengthening of believers, helping them persevere, is evidence of his righteousness here and now. And eventually his justice will be obvious when the troublemakers are paid back for the trouble they've brought on believers without cause unjustly. But there's more that's positive to give believers hope and meaning when suffering happens. Let's say again, if you can say it with me together today, big idea. When troubles perplex, Jesus coming protects. His glory connects. His glory, his honor, his renown, his radiance, his outstanding excellence par none. What does our suffering, our, our troubles and trials have to do with that? Well, there's a little phrase occurring twice in this passage you may have missed if you're not careful. Something of ultimate value that's directly connected to our suffering. Look for the word worthy. 
verse 5b. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Pay attention. What does this say we are suffering for? The kingdom of God. The Thessalonians, by their testimony, by sticking fast to the good news about Jesus, were helping spread the kingdom of God, God's governance coming into people's lives. Paul says in verse 3, not only is their faith growing more and more, what else? 3b, the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. In the midst of a secular culture, that stands out majorly. The church's love and fellowship points to the Lord beyond it. Side note. Back up a bit in verse 5. Paul says their perseverance in the face of persecution will result in them being counted worthy of God's kingdom for which they are suffering. Counted worthy. Shown to be of value. To be deserving. To merit the kingdom. To be significant. Treasured. Held dear. To matter in the light of eternity by God's grace. Isn't that the bottom line of living? To count in the eyes of God. Jesus' suffering to death on the cross is evidence, demonstrable proof of God's love for us sinners, Romans 5.8. It redeems us, gives us value, shows how much we matter to the Lord. Now, our suffering for the kingdom results in us being counted worthy of that kingdom. There's an echo of this down in verse 11. It says, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may, again, count you worthy of his calling. It's not that we earn our salvation. Jesus bought that for us at the cross by the price of his blood. But our endurance of hardship is evidence of our being counted worthy of God's calling, of his kingdom. And this being worthy, having value, being significant, is connected to Jesus' own glory. It's a very surprising little preposition in this passage. Why is Jesus coming back? Verse 10 is part of the answer that may surprise you. Verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Second part there is straightforward enough to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Yes, we will marvel at seeing Jesus bodily. His earthly presence drew crowds. His post-resurrection appearances were miraculous. How much more wonderful will be his return? But that first bit, to be glorified in his holy people. Not by, but in. What's that mean? Jesus will actually be glorified in us by our behavior, our character, our believing uprightness will actually reflect on him. Make him look good? Yes. His glory is connected to you. That's not a one-off on Paul's part. Look further down at verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. Jesus is glorified in you. 
You make him look good. You bring him honor. New Living Translation. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live, and you will be honored along with him. Because of the way you live. Because of the way you persevere and keep trusting God when things aren't going right. When your battery dies. Because you keep confessing Jesus even when others ridicule you or despise you or write you off as crazy, ludicrous, ridiculous. Your witness reflects on him. Your comportment gives him a good name, an honorable reputation. There's a reciprocal glory. Jesus makes you look good and vice versa. You're connected. Your reputation is tied up with his As Jesus alluded in John 15, we're identified with our Savior. John 15, 4, he said, Remain in me and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Stay connected. Abiding in each other. The vine and the branch are one and the same plant. Another apostle, Peter, conveys a similar idea. For context, he's talking about believers who have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 1 Peter 1.7 says, These, the trials, have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Your endurance reflects well on your Lord and Savior. Uh, Section, what's in your teacup? A couple of short illustrations to close. In 1895, Andrew Murray was in England suffering from a terribly painful back, the result of an injury he had incurred years before. One morning, while Andrew Murray was eating breakfast in his room, his hostess told him of a woman downstairs who was in great trouble and wanted to know if he had any advice for her. Andrew Murray handed her a paper he'd been writing on and said, give her this advice I'm writing down for myself. It may be that she'll find it helpful. This is what was written. In time of trouble, say, First, he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then say, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last say, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, he knows. Therefore say, I am here, one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, under his training, four, for his time. On another occasion, Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, now OMF, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, was talking to a young missionary who was about to start work in China. Hudson Taylor said, look at this, and, and presounded to pound his fist on the table. The teacups jumped and some tea spilled out over the top. While the startled young man was wondering what all this was about, Taylor explained, 
When you begin your work, you will be buffeted in numerous ways. The trials will be like blows. Remember, these blows will bring out only what is in you. What's in your teacup? When pressures and persecutions pound us, may the Lord help what spills out bring glory to Him and reflect well upon us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how glorious it will be when you return on the clouds with your powerful angels to set things right and take us to be with you forever. Maranatha, may you come soon. But until then, help us be strong in the face of life's troubles. By your Spirit, give us grace and wisdom to be witnesses to those who oppose your good news. Keep our faith growing and our love for one another increasing so others may see how good you are through the way we behave together. In Jesus' name, amen.